Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. If you haven't listened to the episode about Steven Stainer, which I did previous to this episode, go back and give it a listen. It is the prequel to the Stainer family saga of tragedy, part one of part two, because this is Storytime's first ever mid-week episode release, and that's because it's kind of a part two. Now, it doesn't have to be a part two, but given how crazy the whole Stainer family thing was, I think we should do it as a part two. Now, let's get started with Carrie Stainer. Ooh, I almost forgot. Before I get started, I first want to thank you guys for tuning in and listening. I love doing this true crime podcast. I love it. I love it. I love it. Secondly, if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, I would totally appreciate leaving me a review, preferably five stars, but honesty is always the best policy. So come on, tell me how it is. All right, let's get started. Harry was Steven Stainer's oldest brother. Now, Steven Stainer was kidnapping victim turned hero in 1974. And not only was Carrie Steven's oldest brother, he was the oldest of five children born to Kay and Delbert Stainer. As we know, Steven Stainer was Carrie's younger brother who disappeared at the age of seven. Carrie would have been around 11 years old at the time and always felt there was something he could have done if only he'd known. He loved Stephen and they had a really good relationship. Stephen would ride bikes and play with Carrie. And given the age difference between Carrie and Stephen, I think that makes Carrie a pretty good brother. Of course, Stephen's disappearance rocked the Stainer family. Both Carrie's parents became distant and a bit cold. According to a neighborhood friend of Stainer's, Kay and Delbort left Stephen's room just the way it was and they never gave up hope. They toted their kids around on many searches and potential leads looking for Stephen. Now, there was a shift in the family, and many people speculate Carrie could easily have felt maybe that he was left out, cast aside, and possibly that his parents wished he'd been the one taken or disappeared, and Stephen was the real son that they loved. It really doesn't help that Carrie had an emotional disconnect with others. According to forensic psychologist Catherine Ramsland, Carrie had a diagnosis of high-functioning autism, which later was referred to as Asperger's, but again, people refer to it now as just on the spectrum. Now, he'd been diagnosed also with compulsion to twist and pull his hair out, so he always wore almost like a fisherman's hat or a hunting hat, and he would just tell people that he was balding like his dad because his dad, Delbert, did have a cul-de-sac balding head. Now, despite these difficulties and complications in Carrie's life, he did okay at school. He wasn't overly popular, but he was liked enough. He was a bit quiet, and he had a very mischievous look to him. He was a great drawer and cartoon artist, and he often had his cartoons published in the school newspaper, which he worked for, so maybe pretty easy. And But people actually did say how much they enjoyed his drawings and that he was a good artist. When Stephen returned, it was a total media nightmare and circus. Stephen got a lot of praise and attention while Carrie began to withdraw more and more. He was even seen leaving early and alone at a news conference that the whole family attended upon Stephen's return home. I'm sure he had a teenage feeling of jealousy. He already felt guilty about not being able to save his little brother and um, his parents had distanced themselves. 
he already had a pre-existing difficulty connecting with people so he probably felt these feelings on a deeper level when Steven returned and maybe he kind of resented his brother and the fame and the attention or his parents for it I'm not sure but more insight into Carrie's life will unfold during the trials now let's get started on Carrie Stainer's crimes First, I'm going to tell you guys the crimes that took place at Cedar Lodge, which is at Yosemite National Park on Valentine's Day, and then I'll unwind the investigation. So it was February 1999 when Carol's son, who was 42, and her daughter Julie, 15, went along with Julie's lifelong friend Sylvania, who was actually from Argentina. She was 16, and they were all three doing a road trip to Yosemite National Park as a kind of last hurrah trip for a memory between Sylvania and Julie because Sylvania was going to go back home to Argentina. Now, they checked into the lodge at Yosemite National Park on Valentine's Day. They spent the day exploring, and then by 7.30, they were all cuddled into the room for the night where Carol had phoned her husband and said they were going to explore some more of the park in the morning, and then they would check out and meet him and their other two adopted sons at the San Francisco airport. Now, her husband says that the ladies were a no-show, so he actually thought maybe he misunderstood the instructions because it's 1999. Very few people have cell phones and car phones. Um, They both are traveling and on a travel agenda. So I guess he kind of figured, oh, I must have gotten my wires crossed and I'll catch her. I'll catch up with her soon and figure out what happened. But after not hearing from her, he decided to call the Cedar Lodge where they were staying. A woman in the office answered the phone and told him that his wife had not checked out, but she would check the room. Upon checking the room, it appeared to have been freshly showered in emptied and the key was sitting out as if they checked out but didn't bother to stop by the office her rental car was gone as well immediately her husband decided to call the police department in that county and file a missing person report while he did that carol's dad drove straight to yosemite national park to help with the investigation now remember this is a state park and you know sometimes people get lost or have an outdoor accident that requires a search and rescue But other than these incidents, it's a very safe park. Immediately, all local forces were called along with the FBI and they began a search for the three women. By the way, during the search, they found 27 stolen cars, but not the car that they were looking for, not the rental car Carol was driving. Three days into the search, they found Carol's wallet. It was 85 miles away in Modesto. And uh, Carol's dad posted a $125,000 reward. Investigators then began to question everybody at Cedar Lodge, even Carrie Stainer, who was a maintenance man there. They got nothing out of it. No leads, nada. During the investigation, someone tried to access Carol's bank account, and this looked like a really good lead. Then they also got a handwritten letter that had been sent in saying, we had fun with them indicating that there was multiple perpetrators. They traced the calls that tried to access Carol's bank and they got these two men. One of the men confessed to the crime, but his story didn't match the evidence and the other man maintained his innocence. Both of them had priors for very violent offenses along with a lot of other crimes, but they were both found to be unrelated to the case and were released. 
A month into the investigation, they finally found Carol's car and it was completely burned. Okay, it was two hours south of Cedar Lodge and both the remains of Carol and Sylvania were found charred and in the trunk. They appeared to have been deceased before the car was lit on fire. But where's Julie? Until a hand-drawn map was sent in with the location believed to be Julie's remains, they had no idea. But after the letter was sent in, they recovered her body and she was returned to her family, who could then lay her to rest. This is so sad. Now, this case came to a sort of pause because they had no other real leads or evidence. They didn't have DNA information they could follow up on. Everything kind of dried up. But another attack took place at Yosemite Park, and this time it was a woman named Joey Armstrong. Now, she was a young woman in her 20s who loved adventure and outdoor. She was a real outdoor enthusiast who actually lived at Yosemite Park with her boyfriend. She would take children on tours through Yosemite, and um, in July of 99, this is five months after Carol and her girls had been missing and deceased, Joey did not show up for a weekend of camping with friends. When she didn't show up, her friends actually called the wildlife officers in Yosemite for a welfare check because this was very out of character for her. When they arrived, they immediately knew there was an issue. Her truck was out front and loaded to go, but her cabin door was open and there was music playing inside. So, for those of you who don't know, music is often used as a distraction to surrounding neighbors during a potentially loud and or violent attack. So, upon searching for Joey, they did find her in a nearby creek. I would say that she was laying face down, but she had actually been decapitated. It looked as if she'd been sexually assaulted too due to her clothing placement. In terms of evidence, the strongest and most helpful evidence they had were the tire tracks that were left near her body. It was particularly helpful that the truck had two different tires, and the police did a really thorough investigation on these tire prints for evidence. They took continual pictures, and they did uh, casts of them, which I didn't actually think about, but yeah, they did plaster casting. Um, later in search efforts, they actually found Joey's head and it was not too far from her body. When investigators canvassed and began questioning people in the area, they had eyewitness accounts of a utility truck. Now, this truck fit the unique tire description as well, and the truck belonged to Carrie Stainer, a maintenance man at Cedar Lodge at Yosemite Park. It was not long into the search for the maintenance truck that they actually found Carrie butt naked, smoking weed. This is never pointed out as unusual in any episode or podcast that I've heard cover this case, but I found it pretty striking. It maybe seemed fitting to Carrie's outdoor nature boy character, but he did let officers search his truck and backpack reluctantly, but it turned up nothing. When they questioned Carrie, he lied about being in that area, even though people saw him in his truck and they knew he was in the area. His vehicle's tires also matched the impressions, which later police went looking to question Carrie further about, and guess what? Nowhere to be found. So they put out a bolo, which is be on the lookout. And when somebody saw the bolo, they reported that Carrie was at a nudist colony called the Laguna del Sol. Now, to me, this lead would totally sound like a prank, but it was pretty convincing, and they followed up on it. 
So on July 24th, they went to bring Carrie in for questioning, and he reacted really strangely. Upon seeing the officers there, he actually put his hands on his head, presuming he was under arrest, but he was just being taken in for questions. It's worth noting to me that everyone knew about the Stainer family and what happened. It wasn't far from this area. And if we remember, Stephen Stainer, the very first place that Kenneth Parnell took him when he kidnapped him was out to his cabin in Yosemite Park. So the investigators forged kind of a connection with Carrie by asking him about his brother, Stephen. And Carrie seemed like he was really hurting, according to the police. When they brought him in for questioning, he'd agreed to do fingerprints and have his photograph taken. Now, the FBI photographer and agent, Stephen Grube, said that Carrie was handsome, tall, clean-cut, well-spoken, and a really nice guy. In fact, when somebody asked Grube if he thought that Casey was responsible for the four murdered women, he said, nah. He said he seemed like way too nice of a guy. But he was wrong. Carrie ultimately confessed to the investigator. Now, this investigator has a knack for gathering confessions. He's the kind of man that people just want to open up to. He initially confessed to Joey's murder, and it was not a premeditated plan. It was more of just a crime of opportunity. He saw her, and he just decided he'd kidnap her. But the reason that he killed her so quickly after encountering her was because she would not stop fighting him. After he duct taped her and put her in his truck, she still wouldn't quit fighting. She even jumped out of his window, bound with duct tape, and took off running. Stainer then chased her and ultimately decided that he was going to have to kill her. Although she fought really hard, she was a really petite woman and just wasn't a match for Carrie. He did chase her down and kill her. The reason Carrie could do this because he had a kidnapping kit that he kept in his car, which was equipped with duct tape, a knife, and a gun. Although Carrie confessed to this murder, when he was pressed about the three other women, he was a lot more hesitant and tried to put stipulations on confessing. Very sick ones. He said he would confess in exchange for access to the type of evidence the FBI can get. He was asking to view seized child pornography, although he would not use the words child pornography. He just repeated pictures and videos of little girls. Of course, there's no way in hell they were going to secure private viewing child pornography for this dude. But according to Carrie, he'd always had sick fantasies of abuse and molestation since he was seven. He had a specific fantasy that involved him having sexual relations with two young girls. He'd originally planned to kill his year-long girlfriend, have his way with her two small daughters, and then likely kill them also. But apparently, somebody was at his girlfriend's apartment on Valentine's Day, and that person was kind of in his way. And so he left and was then on the prowl when Carol and her girls appeared at the Cedar Lodge. He went to her room and he was dressed as a maintenance man, which he actually was the maintenance man. And he told her that he needed in to fix something. I think he said it was a pipe in the bathroom or something or another. But she refused to let him in until he told her, well, 
okay, I guess I can go down to the office and secure you guys a new room and move y'all in there because this has to get fixed either way. Not wanting the hassle of moving rooms, she let him in. He first put the two girls in the bathroom and strangled Carol. After placing her in the car trunk, he proceeded to try and have sex with Julie and Sylvania. But Sylvania was so fearful that she panicked. He ended up strangling her and placing her in the trunk of the car with Carol. Now with both those women deceased, he moved on to Julie. And he tried to have sex with her, but he was unable to get an erection. Ugh. Dude, incompetency has a lot to do with this, his state of mind, I'm sure, and how he got into this position. So he moved her into another room while he cleaned up. He got wet towels and placed them on the bathroom floor so he could stage it to look like the women showered. He emptied their room and then he loaded Julie into the car and drove off. Now, he drove to the location that he left Julie's body in. He decided that he had to kill her and ditch the car. It was two days later that he would return to light the car on fire and drive Carol's wallet out to Modesto. Now, although they did not comply with his request for child pornography, he did ultimately confess to all of this. And he's also the one who staged her wallet in Modesto, sent in the handwritten clue that we'd had fun with her. And he also sent in the handwritten note with the map of where Julie's body was found. He tried to find ways to mislead the police by putting other people's DNA on the letters and envelopes. And all that planning makes you wonder how much more terror he's either already caused or could have caused if he'd had just a little bit more self-control. Oh, that's so awful. Now, he received two trials. In Joey's trial, he did not face the death penalty because Joey's mom was against the death penalty. But he was sentenced to life in prison September 14th of the year 2000. He later went to court for the murders of Carol, Julie, and Sylvania in 2002. This time, he was facing the death penalty. In an attempt to spare him his life, a lot more things came out about the Stainer family during Carrie's trial. For one, Kay the mother had been molested by her father growing up and she still allowed him to live in their family home while she was raising the children saying that she just kept him away from her daughters but Gilbert the father actually molested their daughters when they were growing up and he had to do counseling Carrie was also said to have touched his sisters and he would also spy on them and was known for being a peeping Tom who even video recorded people sometimes. Both Carrie's parents testified that they were cold and distance after the disappearance of Stephen. Carrie says that he was molested by his uncle around the same time that Stephen had been kidnapped. However, Carrie was ultimately sentenced to death and he still remains to this day on death row in San Quentin prison. I hear that's one of the toughest prisons. Wow, that's so much to take in. I have a few little thoughts and comments that I'm going to fill you guys in on before I close this episode out. So Carrie Stainer actually worked at the Cedar Lodge for two years before the murders. His girlfriend, he met there and she was a waitress at the Cedar Lodge restaurant where Carrie's apartment was right above. Her daughter, Leanna, did an interview for ABC's 2020, and it's available on their website. She said that Carrie Stainer seemed 
both safe and friendly. He would bring them pictures he drew and buy them Beanie Babies every time he came to visit. Naturally, this small family was shocked when they found out they were the original targets of Carrie Stainer, and thank goodness somebody was with them that day to interrupt his plans. Unfortunate, though, for Carol and her family. Now, Stainer had been asked to write a letter of remorse to his victims, and he chose to only write Julie. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, this is the transcript of FBI agent reading back Stainer's letter to him. I am going to read it out loud to you guys. Dear Julie, there are not enough words in the universe nor days left in my life to express to you how sorry I am for what I have done to you, your mother, and your friend. My weakness to control my evil desire has led us both to this crossroad. You, on one hand, have crossed over to a place of which I can only dream of going, and am going someplace far worse. My thoughts for you are a very sweet young woman who had a wonderful life ahead of her, but as it turns out, I destroyed any hope of that. No more days with your family and friends, no more breaths of fresh air, no more sun shining on your face, no more dreams of a life to be. All of it thrown away like yesterday's trash. My memories of your last few seconds of life will haunt me till the day I die, and rightfully so. The things I told you before I ended your life are things I've never been able to say to anyone else. Perhaps it was the fear of rejection or perhaps it was just plain fear of love, an emotion I have never experienced from anyone but my parents. But I can't blame any emotion or lack of emotion for what I did. I know right from wrong and I don't think that I am insane, but there is a craziness that lurks in my head. Thoughts I have tried to subdue as long as I can remember. I'm just sorry that you were there when the years of fantasizing my darkest dreams became a reality in the flesh. Oh man, that's so heavy. The words that Stainer was referencing that he told Julie before killing her was that he loved her. And thus that is the emotion that he was repressing and dealing with. Anyway, guys, I know that was such a heavy whirlwind to go through, but thank you so much for tuning in and joining me. Let me know what you guys think about the Stainer case and the Stainer family. Before I close out, I do want to add one more thing to my final thoughts and comments, and that is that Carrie Stainer maintained that he had this balance of a love for life and his dark fantasies and it actually reminded me a lot of the Ed Kemper's balance where he knew the reality of the world and also the reality of his fantasies and he was able to separate them for a long time until he just couldn't one day now Carrie even said after killing Julie he looked up at the beautiful sunrise and had still an appreciation for life co-mingled with this dark desire ugh All right, guys, that's all I have for you. Please go check out my Facebook and Instagram pages. Give them a like. Look at the extra content I have for each episode and start a conversation, a little true crime community where we can talk about these wild stories. Also, feel free to email me at storytimepods at gmail.com. I'm always open and interested in having other people join me on the podcast. And definitely reach out to me. Let me know what you think. And let's collab on some other episodes. Have a great day, guys. Bye.